So this is where we have to start with a confession today. This is really awkward. Fuller Seminary is in Pasadena. It's so close to here. And so, uh, you know, it was wise to bring an Irish man all the way across the ocean to talk about something that's, what, a few miles down the road from you guys? So uh, um, sometimes it's easier whenever there's a big distance to talk about something uh, rather than close distance. Uh, So what I want to do is... There's a lot that you could say about Fuller Seminary, and I want to give a a preface at the beginning. There has been a lot of good stuff has come out of Fuller Seminary too, okay? I'm going to talk about some of the um, practical outflows of a shift in doctrine that took place there, and there's a danger sometimes when you hear that that almost everybody who has ever been or written or had any kind of connection to that place gets demonized in our minds. Actually, Fuller Seminary has had uh, people come through its ranks who have made huge contributions to the evangelical world. What well, one key person is uh, John Piper. One of the men we'll talk about today, Daniel Fuller. Um, he, he died very recently, and Piper wrote a kind of obituary for him, uh, kind of a tribute uh, to the man and his influence upon his life. And he notes in the tribute, they differed on this doctrine that we're going to talk about this morning, the doctrine of inerrancy. They differed significantly on that. And they differed then on the outflow of some of the things connected to it, like complementarianism, egalitarianism. They, they, they had different positions on that particular doctrine, the, the role of women um, in the life of the church. And so he was able to say they differed, and yet he also made very clear in that tribute the man had a huge influence on him in terms of just encouraging him to study the Bible, to ask questions of the text. And I think we've got to be cautious whenever we come to this. There's going to be a lot that I may get a little bit more animated about that is not so comfortable about some of the outflows of doctrines and some of the more extreme things that bubbled out of that particular uh, school. And yet at the same time, that's not to say that there isn't good. The way I like to think about Fuller Seminary is the way I would think about some of my charismatic friends. Uh, They love Jesus, I think. But there's a lot of lost stuff going on in the conversation over the dinner table because our authority, our main decider on issues has been kind of set to the side. So, so I, I think we've got to re- remember that when we approach Fuller. We're talking about um, a seminary that claims Christ, uh, you know, a seminary that um, has at least a reverence for the Bible, They've just moved and seen it as a final authority. And that's, I think, where all the trouble comes. And I think that's where it's helpful. Because what I want us to be thinking about as we look at this very uh, close case study about you know, an institution is to think about how when we shift and seeing this book as our final authority, it has a huge effect on the way that we practically work out our faith. And, and so that, that's our goal uh, this morning. So if I can show just a few pictures so you sort of kind of get a sense of this place. If you can flip to the next slide for me. We'll just go through a few very quickly. This is what, a lot of these are coming straight off Fuller's website. Uh, a lot of the things I'll talk about are things uh, straight from Fuller's website and in 
um, books that they commissioned to be written as well. So I'm not trying to, I hope, demonize. I'm, I'm trying to tell you an account that they, um, you know, feel um, the inheritors of. So, so the, 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 this is the kind of a founding uh, promotion uh, as the institution was uh, starting. There, there's a lot of key people involved in the beginning. So if we go to the next slide, we can get a little bit closer up to some of these people. Charles Fuller was key. We'll talk about him in a moment. He was a radio evangelist. He was known for his evangelism and for uh, uh, conversion, a call for personal transformation. Uh, I, I'm going to take this off because I'm a poor Irish boy and this is hot in here today, so please forgive me. Should have done it much earlier. Now you all have to look at sweat patches the rest of the <laughs> seminar. <laughs> um, Charles Fuller was your stereotypical evangelist by nature, a radio evangelist that was calling people for a personal commitment to Jesus. If we go to the next slide. These are the kind of founding faculty. Uh, you have Okenge uh, here. Um, he, he remained in Boston. He was the first and technically third <laughs> president of the institution. Um, and he uh, um, remained in Boston, but he, he was so instrumental in the vision to set this thing up and in the initial hiring of certain faculty members. Uh, and when we talk about the goals of the institution, he was a real driver in terms of what those goals uh, were. Uh, Wilbur Smith, uh, Carl F. Henry, um, uh, Harold Wenzel, Everett Harrison. If you know a little bit about Southern Californian church history and even American uh, church history in the, the um, uh, 21st century, these guys are significant influences and, and left a huge legacy. So it's kind of like the uh, cream of the crop at one level are pulled together to get this thing up and going. Uh, and of course, they all look like... Uh, you know, fine, respectable gentlemen too. If we go to the next slide, this is the first class um, that started there. Again, you know, there's no, you know, um, Dr. Lawson tells the DMIN students all the time, man looks at the outward appearance and then he stops. Uh, and by all accounts, their outward appearance uh, they look like good, conservative, you know, Bible-teaching Christians. If we go to the next slide. Uh, here's them kind of setting uh, into motion um, the, the main building that we would now associate with uh, Fuller Seminary. Big deal, lots of excitement. And the campus is beautiful there in Pasadena if you've ever gone down to it. Um, if we go to the next slide. Again, they, they love these staged photos where they kind of look at plans as if they really knew what they were doing. I, like, it was the architect and the builder that understood these plans, but you get the photo shot. Um, if we go to the next slide. Uh, here's uh, three key men, again, in the initiation and those early years and the, 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 the kind of conservative group that opened the door for change that we'll talk about. If we go to the next slide. Just to keep it moving. You know this middleman? No, yes. Uh, well, there was other evangelists involved in this. Billy Graham was keen. He, he brought a lot of funding into the institution in the early days, and he came and he sat on their board 
of directors as well. So again, I want us to get into our head. This is, um, this is a real concerted effort amongst uh, key individuals in American evangelicalism. Okay, if we go to the next slide. Uh, Dan Fuller is a younger man. Um, we'll talk about him. He, he, Fuller Seminary wasn't named after Charles Fuller. It was actually named after Fuller's father. It was kind of a tribute to him. But uh, Charles Fuller is the initiator, and Daniel Fuller will become a key character in the history as we run forward. If you go to the next slide. Uh, uh, Carnell, he becomes the second president. Really sharp guy. Really, really um, careful, thoughtful, conservative uh, scholar, but able to engage and to talk at a lot of different levels. But he had his own uh, difficulties. And we'll maybe mention a little bit about that without going into too much detail. But, it, but he had a long battle with um, depression and dependence and antidepressants. And ultimately, there's a huge question mark around his death. He died in his 40s. He left behind a wife and two kids. Incredibly sad, and nobody really understands the circumstances around it. And it, you can just imagine the pain that's associated with that. And what a mark it left on the institution for a, a long time as well. Go to the next slide. Uh, Dan Fuller, again, he's going to be a key character. Uh, and uh, David Hubbard. David becomes the... Uh, the president, uh, the third or fourth, depending on how you define it, president of Fuller Seminary. And really the big changes that come in and become formalized uh, come in under his uh, watch. And he, he really sits in that role of guiding the seminary for a very long uh, period of time. And uh, his uh, ethos and passion really does bubble out of the nature of that story. Okay, if we go to the next slide. Again, just a little news article about the announcement of uh, Hubbard, a very significant moment. Go to the next slide. And there he is getting um, the baton passed to him, so to speak. If we go to the next slide, I want to now start to actually talk about Fuller, but before we do, because there's a danger I go through this whole seminar talking about the importance of Scripture and never actually read you any Scripture, <laughs> let me read uh, to you just a few verses, uh, well-known verses, but key in understanding what we're talking about this morning from 2 Timothy chapter 4. 2 Timothy chapter 4. 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 1. I solemnly charge you, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is judge, is to judge the living and the dead by his appearing and his kingdom. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled. They will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. But you, be sober in all things. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. 
For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the course, I have kept the faith. In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Let's take a moment and pray. Our Lord and Heavenly Father, we are so thankful that you have given us the glorious resource of your word. We thank you that here and now we have your words. We can study. We can understand. We can have the relevancy of the, the book, the relevancy of your direction work, work its way out in our life. We, we don't have to be in the dark, nor do we have to, in our own powers and with our own subjective opinion, pick and choose what it is we think God wants. But Lord, you have stated it. We thank you for the gift of the Bible. And yet, Lord, we acknowledge the tendency in our own heart to want to run away from uh, your word, to want to compromise in small ways, to want to appeal to the word world and engage with it in, in so many different areas. And Lord, we just pray that even as we think through a story of many brothers and sisters in Christ who have erred and been drawn into ways of thinking that have stunted their growth, we pray and ask, Lord, that you would help us to, with grace, uh, think about what is true and to reaffirm our commitment to the book. So we pray that this time would be helpful to us. For it's in Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. Well, as per the, you know, profound, infallible resource, Wikipedia, it tells us that Fuller Seminary is an interdenominational evangelical Christian seminary in Pasadena, California, with regional campuses in the Western United States. It is egalitarian in nature, period. That's a weird way to start your statement on Wikipedia, isn't it? That, that's what defines the place. The first uh, statement about any type of doctrinal issue is, it is egalitarian in nature, but that's because we're going to understand a little bit of Fuller's Seminary. That became a key issue in their definition. The seminary used to have over 4,000 students. It's now down to just over 2,000 students um, coming from 90 countries, 110 denominations. There's over 41,000 alumni all around the globe. So this is no small institution. It is broadly evangelical proclaims itself to be broadly evangelical, though it also acknowledges within it that there are some conservative evangelical views held, and there are others that hold to a liberal evangelical uh, uh, sentiment on issues such as limited inerrancy, um, that the Bible basically is true and relevant in issues of faith, but not so much on actual stuff like uh, how the world works, science, uh, uh, understanding history. This influential 
and flagship institution of the new evangelical uh, movement, according to its own website. So again, I'm not making up any part of this story. It was founded in 1947 by the man we saw the picture of, Charles Fuller, a radio evangelist known for his old-fashioned revival or show. He also brought into the play good men that he had come in contact with over the years who he was impressed by. Harold Ockengay was a key individual. He was a pastor of Park Street Church in Boston. And he became the first president of the institution, even though he lived there on the East Coast. But he was influential in selecting the faculty and defining the goals in that, at that early stage. Now, the background of the whole thing was a rift that had taken place uh, when the mainline denominations had started to go uh, liberal in their thinking, especially as regards to Scripture, there was a movement to come back to the fundamentals and, and to come back to the sense of the centrality of Scripture in the life of our uh, church and the life of our person. And, and so th- there was this desire to come back. And to do that, there was a separation movement that t- took place. So uh, men uh, left Princeton to s- establish Westminster. People left the mainline denominations to set up new denominations that were seeking to be uh, committed to uh, Scripture. And, and, and this movement took place. But in the second, third generation of that movement, you had men who held the same convictions but were sad because they felt that they had lost influence. And what they wanted was they really wanted to be able to dialogue with wide academia and to be able to dialogue with the mainline denominations in the hope of being able to stimulate transformation, a kind of reformation within them. And so Fuller wanted an institution to be set up with that kind of purpose. He wanted to set up, I think he called it the Caltech of the evangelical world, high-flying academics that could engage in conversation with the larger uh, society and, and indeed would be seeking to bring, and it was a key part of Fuller's agenda in the 40s, uh, a social activism that would... Um, bring transformation, that they would be salt, they would be light, they would, would change and transform the thinking of the world. The earliest faculty that were selected and took up roles, they were uh, men who held theological and social conservative views. Um, and really the professors that had more of a liberal evangelical bent were men that came in in the 60s and the 70s. Um, There were tensions in the late 50s and the early 60s over uh, some of these issues around the nature of Scripture, around the issue of biblical inerrancy. And again, that's taken straight off their website. That's a, a wrestling match that they acknowledge and they're proud of how they landed on that issue. So it led to people coming out of that, rejecting association with the fundamentalism of the past, and instead proclaiming themselves new evangelicals, and and proclaiming that they held to a more progressive type of theology. 
uh, David Hubbard, we saw his picture a moment ago, the third president, under whom the new direction of the seminary was solidified. <laughs> he recruited new people like uh, McGovern, who really headed up um, a new school for world missions, and, and they had significant influence upon the missionary dynamic of uh, many organizations around the globe. Um, they had uh, Peter Wagner, who came in, we'll talk about him later as well, who also came into that institution and through that kind of promoted this power evangelism that was hand in hand with the oddest forms of uh, charismatic identity at the time that had bubbled up in Southern California. And, and so the, all that said, this institution was for good or for bad, had massive influence on the rest of the world. Uh, you had uh, different men that kind of had uh, different uh, um, roles within it. Um, but like, if you were to look at Fuller today, it's a strange place. It's a, it was the first school, just one example, in the uh, first school in American evangelicalism to set up within it an LGBTQ club. Um, an organization for the students to be part of. So, so uh, how do we go from conservative to that? Well, that's what we want to talk about. Uh, we want to talk about that drift. It's not unusual to find people who claim that they love the Bible and, uh, and, and, that, and yet still talk about how it has inaccuracies within it. Now, I don't think that few squares with the claims of the Bible itself, and it certainly doesn't square with the claims of the historic Christian church either, but some people do claim that. And so as a conservative today, the position of Grace Church is conservative on this issue, we hold strongly to the idea that the original manuscripts did not contain any error that what they affirmed was true, uh, that, that, that as God was involved in the authorship of this, that what, what is produced in the original manuscripts was something uh, perfect. It was good. It was without error. And, and so uh, if, um, if the Bible is without error, it gets to stand as our authority in the church. When it comes to an issue of ethics or something, a social movement that's happening in the world, and we're trying to work out as Christians, how do we respond? We go to the book and we have a discussion about what does the book say about that? You know, what are the implications of the teachings of the book uh, for that particular area? But, but in the larger Christian world at the time, there had been a, a movement that had happened a few centuries before uh, of liberalism. And it asserted that you could be a Christian who liked the book, but saw it as something that was good for your personal faith. And rather than an authority being put here, there was an authority that was placed in here. And rather than the book determining what I should do, I determined the areas of life in liberalism, that the book could speak into. So, so uh, liberal Christianity still proclaimed and talked. It used very similar language to evangelicals. It talked about faith. It talked about Jesus. It talked about honoring and loving him. But 
the him and the authority behind that was determined in one's own heart. And so that, that movement took the world by storm and it, it moved the thinking away from, you know, something like Romans chapter 10, verse 17. Faith comes by hearing and hearing from the word of God to something that was felt internally. And so these um, men that established Fuller Seminary, they established it with a belief in inerrancy. They, they, they had a strong belief in the authority of Scripture. They, they, they believed that that was important. And, and they believed that in every area, I can read uh, from uh, uh, a founding document, uh, its own words. It said, uh, uh, not, so, not sorry, a founding document, uh, Fuller's uh, uh, account of what took place. It says, the the few, first few considers all scripture to be inspired and true, including the historical, geographical, and scientific teaching. The second few, which these people moved towards, holds that only the Bible's teaching on salvation, history, and doctrine is true. And so the Bible is authoritative for faith and practice today. So, so, so the Bible has a role, but a different type of role. And so today's evangelical world is still wrestling with the issues of inerrancy and the implications that your view of the Bible has on your faith and practice. And so uh, Fuller Seminary forms a great case study for that. In the world after the wars, Fuller was set up to try and be a bastion, to try and re-engage with world leadership, church leadership, um, uh, secular academy and secular media, and, 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 and they want it to be heard. Uh, they, they established themselves with that goal of uh, being able to engage with um, uh, the world. They, they want it uh, to be um, able to be in dialogue, and they want it to hold to the authority of Scripture in that dialogue. But what's the problem with that? What do you think is the problem with that? Two goals, to be heard by the world, to be able to dialogue with the world, and yet also to hold to the authority of Scripture. What do you think is the problem with that? Yeah, the world doesn't care. Uh, the world doesn't care about the authority of Scripture. And so if the message that we're bringing them is what a book says, well, they don't care about that book. So, so what authority does that have in their life? And you can see how they had this lofty goal of being heard and bringing transformation, but they, the very anchor that they had of authority in the Scripture was going to make that ability to at least be heard difficult. You see a crack that happened early in the summer. If you go to the next slide, I think... Um, again, early in the seminary's life, they had this goal of wanting to engage with uh, society. And so they, they, they were picking out lots of different um, faculty members. And um, Europeans are weird, okay? <laughs> I'm allowed to say that. 
the Europeans are weird. And, and, and the issues that were defining and had defined America the century before, it played out in a very different way in Europe. And, and, and so Europeans kind of were naive largely about the types of conversations that were going on in America. And I think Americans were largely uh, naive when it came to Europeans. And so... Uh, the president, the first president, searching for faculty, he made a move quite early on to try and attract this man, Bela uh, Fassady, over to the uh, seminary. And he was a, a good scholar, widely regarded in, again, secular academics. He, he was a, a man that um, people thought highly of and yet seemed to have more conservative views on issues and so he was brought into the seminary, but it created a really uh, quick problem because he uh, started to engage in things like the World Church, uh, World Council of Churches. Uh, he himself uh, didn't understand even the nature of the discussion around inerrancy. And so people in his class very quickly were seeing that he didn't hold the same line as the others. And, and so th- eventually this man was made to resign from the seminary. A wonderful letter was written um, uh, by the president uh, saying, quote, The administration and the faculty of Fuller Theological Seminary hold him in the highest esteem, even though on some matters of conviction in Christian theology and polity, we have basic differences. Now, that happened quite early on, and it kind of took everybody by surprise because he came in and he ticked so many of the boxes in terms of what Fuller wanted to do and be. But, but, but when it came to issues on the ground, and especially issues of donors given to the seminary, there was an upset because this wasn't old-time revival art anymore. It was a very different thing happening than what people, at least outside, expected and what the student body that enrolled thought uh, that this experience at Fuller was going to be. But things move forward. If we go to the next slide, I think. Oh, we can sit in that for a while. That'll do. Um, a changing of the guard started to take place. New evangelicalism was a young movement anyway. It, it was big in its ambition. It was determined to talk to the world. But when you actually boil down the the types of men that were involved in it, they were young and exactly who they were theologically wasn't always clearly defined. And so it wasn't long before the issue of inerrancy that had been so precious to the founders started to be seen in the next generation that came as something that was... um, to be set aside, that there was softer language that could be employed. And so uh, they, they moved on this um, a big issue and they, um, a new generation of faculty members were coming into the institution that didn't hold and didn't teach in their classes the same authority that Scripture would have in issues of um, history and background, uh, science, and, and those sorts of things. And it created a rift between the old faculty 
In the news, one historian writing on the whole thing said, a secular historian, by 1961, the atmosphere at Fuller was poisonous. Uh, These two parties couldn't simply unite around that purpose because the very way they thought about engaging with the world was different. Um, It was probably... uh, more seen whenever that Daniel Fuller, the son of Charles Fuller, had gone and trained like many others of the first graduating class over in Europe and had come back with nuanced language and a slightly different view. And yet was immediately embraced into faculty and became an influential member within the administration. 1967, at the Evangelical Theological Society, Daniel Fuller presented a paper where he denied factual inerrancy, claiming that the scriptures were only inspired and inerrant on revelational matters, not non-revelational matters such as science. That was a public statement uh, seen by all the other institutions out there. That created a storm. George Ladd, another faculty member at the time, he wrote a book in 1967 in which he denied factual inerrancy of scripture. The, the types of classes that were being taught changed. The English Bible class and the OTI class, the Old Testament introduction class, those were dropped from the curriculum completely. And, and so uh, because such drastic change were, changes were happening, a number of those conservative faculty members felt that they were being pushed out and had no other choice but to exit and to be somewhere else. Um, in fact, one uh, writer on the history at the time, he talks about Gleason Archer, who's a conservative. He had uh, apparently been prepared to uh, remain at Fuller um, so that there would be a, a conservative old Princetonian voice on the issue of inerrancy still represented there. However, he was pushed out. He was pushed out along with Smith and Linzel, who also were two like-minded men who were conservative and had at first wanted to stay. And so by 1971, the board of the school voted unanimously to adopt a new doctrinal statement on the issue of Scripture, where that claim that, that, that God was fully engaged in plenary inspiration, all aspects of it, his marks sat over the whole book, that was taken out. That was removed. And and so Fuller had been a place um, that on paper affirmed inerrancy, but in practice for a couple of decades had shifted and moved away from that. And now at least there was integrity. People could see what exactly was uh, believed. But you can't shift your doctrine without your practice being affected. Ian Murray says there is an unintended consequence of undermining the evangelical position. And so you can't shift in something so foundational for life and practice and not see dramatic change happen in our practice And so what I want to do is note just four, there's lots of things we could say, but just four changes that that shift made. And the first big change that took place at Fuller Seminary was they had to move to a subjective approach to biblical interpretation. 
a subjective approach to biblical interpretation. What I mean by that is instead of looking and saying, well, that's obviously what it says, so this is what you should do, they had an authority in themselves to read and see what it says and then say, but is that really what we're meant to do? So is there part of, there's something there we should keep and there's something there we should get rid of. And the power of interpretation sits within the interpreter. So amongst this group of new leaders at Fuller, that pattern of European influence emerged. European scholasticism largely was influenced by liberalism, neo-orthodoxy, which all you need to know about those movements, you don't need to study anything about them, just know they have a small few of Scripture. That's the big thing, a small few of Scripture. And these men that had trained in those institutes came back and they were suspicious of the black and white nature of conservative, the conservative view of Scripture. I love the black and white nature of the conservative view of Scripture because I don't know if you've looked at your Bibles, but there's a lot of black and a lot of white when you read it. Thank goodness. Uh, so, so, So a number of the men had gone and trained in different places abroad And they brought back higher critical assumptions or practices that you had to navigate through before you were even allowed to decide what to do with this biblical text. So you had to decide how much of this is actually the biblical text from God. And and bits were being set aside, bits could be dusted off, and and that became the normal uh, entrance point. So this book, that was a long wait to work out what on earth this slide was, wasn't it? This book was written by three of the faculty members of that generation at Fuller, including the middle one, the president himself. And it came out at that particular stage, but it came out hugely anticipated by the the evangelical community in America. But it declared that Scripture is fallible. Quote, The Old Testament is trustworthy for the purposes for which God has inspired it and by no means liable to deceive in these areas. Correspondingly, one should not seek to derive from it truths not demanded by the biblical intention. It is possible to ask too much of Scripture and to project back into it ideal pictures of what the Bible ought to be, which do it no honor. What's the problem with that statement? I know it was hard to hear and you all, you know, have fallen asleep already, but... Yes. It's, it's, it's subject art. Well, who, who decides what those areas of authority it can speak to you are and the areas that it has no truth or authority over? Again, it's, it's that subjectivism that's, that's so dangerous. They, they, they continue, divine revelation has been given in a particular historical and cultural context. At times, it reflects the cultural limitations of God's people to whom it was first given. In other words, they were dummies. And sometimes their dummy ideas polluted the text. Friends, that's blasphemy. And, and, and it makes this glorious book cheap. And it basically says that when it comes to areas of culture, 
be very suspicious. Well, think about what culture is. You think of our culture today, issues of sexuality, issues of gender, issues of identity. That's all cultural. And we're taking away the authority the book has in those areas. That's really, really dangerous. As Lynn Zell, one of the more conservative faculty members who ultimately left pretty soon after this, he rightly said of it, of all the doctrines connected with the Christian faith, none is more important than the one that has to do with the basis of our religious knowledge. Why? Because it dictates our faith and practice. And if we lose the foundation, which is what this was doing, it becomes an, an immensely subjective exercise. All of a sudden, the discussion that scholars are having are not, well, what do we do with that in this world? The, the discussion around the scholarly table is, well, what bits of that do you like or not like? What bits of that do we have a discussion about how it affects the world? And what bits do we set aside because it seems a little offensive at the moment? That's really, really dangerous. So one of the other faculty members, Archer, said, said, quote, if there were genuine mistakes of any sort in the original manuscripts, it would mean, obviously, that the Bible contains error along with truth. As such, it would become subject to human judgment, just like many other religious documents. Carl Henry, one of the other founding faculty members, he said, quote, at no point is the word of God to be considered a merely human phenomenon. Rather, it is the word of God, and consequently, it must be true. If you lower your view of Scripture, you, you rob it of authority to speak into your life, and you are not God. The word, the, the Bible talks of the word as if it is God, so to speak. It is pure because God is pure. It is true because God is true. And, and, and to, the, the way the men here, with intention to engage, the way they pressed upon Scripture, robbed it of the authority of the divine. It made the thing obscure. Ian Murray notes that by 1982, it was said that about 15%, only about 15% of the student body in the School of Theology held to the conviction of the seminary's founders on inerrancy. See how quickly, if your teachers wobble in the classroom, the student body follows. It's sad that while the, that leadership wanted to enlighten a new generation in cutting-edge human scholarship, they lost sight of the greatest tool God had ever given to cut and to shape the world. The book, that sharper-than-two-edged sword book. So a subjective approach to biblical interpretation. Now we start to pick up paces, I start to panic. Okay, we'll go to the next slide. <laughs> Second thing is a pragmatic uh, approach to missions and church growth. A pragmatic approach to missions and church growth. Like, I look at this, this is a book, okay? It hasn't really, you know, it's kind of cut, so it hasn't come out very well, that picture. But it's a book. It kind of looks creepy to me, but there you go. Um, 
The, the man here, McGavern, in the book, he was deemed by a large part of the evangelical world as the great shaper of global missions in the 20th century. He, he was the guy that encouraged the type of work that was happening largely in South America, in Africa, in China, uh, the, the, the types of techniques, and I think that is the right word to use, techniques that were being employed uh, largely were driven by this uh, man. And it was driven from Fuller Seminary. The, the institution had already begun that drift away from inerrancy and the fact that the Bible dictates what we do. Uh, it moved away from that and it, 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 it still wanted to be effective. It still wanted to be transformational. And so in 1965, McGavern and others were brought in to establish um, the School of World Mission. And what they were seeking to do was to come up with a new paradigm by which church growth would take place. So if we put in X and Y, churches grow. And if we put in these key ingredients, churches in China grow or Africa grow or wherever it happens to be, they grow. And so the faculty in that uh, department, they, they were extremely interested in contemporary social science. They wanted to know how people thought because their goal wasn't the same as their founder, Charles Fuller, to bring about personal conversion. That was too, that took up too much time. Their goal was to get people in, to see people turn up. And the hope that if we get people here en masse, individuals over time will get affected amongst the mass. And so if, if it was about not so much a conversion experience between them and God, but about having them want to come to a place together under the auspices of Jesus' worship, well, well social science could be a great way to understand how to twist arms and get them here. And what emerged was a system According to one missiologist, that was, quote, the critical evaluation of all existing methods, the use of statistics and comparative studies in order to achieve the end, and the modification or termination of all activities which did not contribute to achieving the primary objective, the expansion of the Christian movement. So, so if you think of a lot of the things we think about with evangelism, door-to-door -door evangelism, or open-air evangelism, you don't see lots of results all the time from that. And they would say, well, we don't see results in this world today because that's a broken system of another generation. So we cut that and we'll try and give them ice cream because everybody in this world likes ice cream so we can get them in with the ice cream. Um, maybe a few plaza fellowships do that, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so you can see how the mindset was different from what we would think of as Missionary work. What do we think of when we think of missionary work? Well, telling people about Jesus and asking them to repent and to believe in him. That's not this. That's not this at all. As Ian Worry wisely notes, the old mark of evangelical preaching that had proudly pronounced the Bible says had given away to a policy where almost everything seemed to be subservient to the desire for numerical success in 
evangelism. So it was all about getting people here. And the pursuit and use of science in order to do that, to achieve that. And the, the goal, according to McGavern, was not individual transformation. It was, it was en masse. It was, it was about crowds. It was, it was purposefully about peoples, he said, not individuals. That he believed that missionaries should concentrate on discipling, not individuals, but whole peoples. That's how change would be brought. And so you can see how different that is to what we would uh, value and encourage. But, but that movement and that program influenced global missions around the world. So much money was given to missionaries that were simply there doing anthropology work to understand the people, first of all, in order that we could work out how to get them to come to a building together rather than talking to them about Jesus. Because the new authority, and this is why I think it ties to the issue in there, and say, wasn't the book, and the Great Commission that the book talks about, that worked in that time in history. But we need to do science and crank the statistics in order to work out what we should do in this time to influence larger society. So, when it came to what the church should be and what missionaries should do, Fuller Seminary had embraced a pie chart at the expense of declaring the central theme of the evangelical message. So, so a subjective approach to biblical interpretation, a pragmatic missions and church growth uh, uh, technique that was encouraged. The third role we'll mention is the changing role of women. The changing role of women. If we go to the next slide. Hmm. That, that book, ordinary, I, I have this, all preachers have this. I have the heresy shelf in my office. Okay? <laughs> and it's the one where you kind of put it in the dirty corner and you always push like a cardboard box or something over the front of it because you don't want any like buddy walking into the office and either first thinking you're into this sort of thing or even worse, picking it up and actually reading it because it's just junk. But sometimes you need to be aware of the types of nonsense that is out there in order to be able to argue and declare truth for the sake of helping people. But I have this book. I, mean, I, I, I bought this book at seminary, so I'm blaming masters for it. <laughs> it was never a required reading, but I did the, uh, a project trying to understand the nature of the argument. So I brought it, bought it in order to understand uh, the opposing argument. And it's pathetic. <laughs> it really is. It, it, like, it's frustrating. That's what I would say. It's frustrating. Because the terms with which it argues its case are so different to where I start. So I, it's hard to engage. Because it's not about what does the Bible say. And we'll talk about why in a second. When the anchor of God's word is removed, it's, it's really hard even to have meaningful dialogue on some of these issues. Um, evangelicals traditionally have been opposed to the ordination of women to ministry because, well, what did they do? They took literally what Paul said. And Paul was clear, he is clear, I shouldn't say he was, he is clear in Scripture about um, male leadership within churches. And, and yet in 
1982, the fall of 1982, over 500 women were enrolled in the MDiv program at Fuller. And Fuller quickly became the key institution for evangelical feminists that they looked to for support. Now, what took place at Fuller, again, it stands out of this rejection of the inerrant text, because when you, you, you set that aside, when you allow a subjective approach to biblical interpretation to come in, it doesn't just affect what you do with the book, it affects the, what the book tells you to do as well. And, and one of the most profound ways it was seen is in breaking down those male-woman distinctives. As Ian Murray said, and I quote, an academic approach to scripture treats the divine element for all practical purposes as non-existent. History shows that when evangelicals allow that approach, their teaching will sooner or later begin to look little different from that of the liberals. Now, at Fuller, that shift took place through this man, uh, Paul Jewett. He was a very smart man, um, uh, but he adopted the mindset of neo-orthodoxy, which still believed there was a message or meaning of God in the text of Scripture, but that human authors, because they're messy and polluted, they corrupted the text itself. And, and so the great work of the interpreter was to come to the text and say, what's from God and what's from broken man? And, and to discern that, first of all, so you work out what bits to take and to put into practice and what bits to set aside. And so when it came to the issue of Paul's words on male and female roles, he was really happy with notes in Galatians about we are all one in Christ. He thought that was great. But when it came to notes in Ephesians about men do this, women do this, or even worse, notes in uh, Timothy about the need for male eldership, uh, that, that eldership was a, a role for men to do, Judith hated it. And, and he decided that was from the culture of Paul's day. That it would have been offensive in that culture for a woman to hold that office. And that would have been counterproductive to the great call for evangelism. And so in that world, for a time, it was allowed. But it was culturally driven, not divinely driven. And so now that this world today in Southern California had so dramatically changed, we can set aside the cultural constraints and simply embrace the all one in Christ Jesus. Now, in case you were asleep there and you just woke up, that's nonsense. It's, but it sounds convincing when you lay it out and when you are the the guy with the doctorate at the front of the classroom. And you can see how so easily people were influenced by a man like this. The, the, the book demonstrated to everyone, this particular book, and the one that he had sent out before it, 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 it dictated that ordination shouldn't be something that was held back from women. As one historian said, progressives rallied behind man as male and female, which was the title of the first book, while for conservatives, it was another sign of the creeping heresy at Fuller, Marsden, 
another historian who was appointed by Fuller Seminary to write a record of all these things. It was a, he, he was paid to do it. He said, though Jewett may have still affirmed the authority of the overall testimony of Scripture on the question of woman, Jewett was saying that Paul was simply in error in certain pronouncements, and that, consequently, they need not be made a matter for faith and practice. You see how that subjective reading opened the door for such a dramatic change? And, and, and the potential doors that it would open up in the future for other changes determined by culture? The last thing I want to mention before I let you eat. <laughs> the embracement of the charismatic movement. If we go to the last slide here. It's not Father Christmas. Um, this is John Wimber. <clears throat> and he was brought into the institution in that church growth, uh, the, the missiology department. And that's, that's what he was part of. And when I say the embracement of the charismatic movement, it wasn't that the charismatic movement wasn't happening. It was happening. But Fuller legitimized the movement in a different way that had ever happened before. When you lose the authority of the book, you have to find, if you're going to be a practicing believer, authority somewhere. And when the book is kind of put into uh, only the academics get it and they are the ones that get to tell us what we do with it, it feels very dead, very sciencey, and not very vibrant. And so Fuller's a weird place because you had this swing towards like a cold, callous, human-centered science approach to Scripture. And you also had at the same time an internal reaction against that where it swung the other way. And instead of simply looking for statistics or the latest scholarly research as they were doing in other parts of the school, there was this move as well to feel something. To have a faith that was dependent more on emotion than any kind of concrete truth. And you can understand that. Um, Southern California, you are responsible for most waves of the charismatic movement. So this was just one more part of it. By, by 1982, an astounding 44% of the Fuller's theological students said they considered themselves Pentecostal or charismatic Christians. And 43% said they believed they had spoken in tongues. Those are big percentages for what's meant to be an evangelical for all institution. Fuller faculty, they, they valued ecumenism, the idea of lots of different types of quarters within Christianity and even the Catholicism and even now today, huge grants going in for discussions with Islam, but they value today and did value for a long time this being part of the ecumenical discussion. That was important to them. And when you have these broad discussions, it often leads, uh, leads or necessitates vagueness in key areas of doctrine. And so in this particular area, 
the, the, the seminary was willing to lay aside issues of even academic priority that had driven the institution before for the sake of greater love, cross-community, cross-denominational acceptance that came through this movement. And in this particular movement, they found uh, strong links for the first time with mainline groups like the Episcopalians and outside groups like the Pentecostals and, and non-Protestant groups like the Catholics and other non-denominational groupings too. Now, now the, the problem was this was all held together by emotional experience. By emotional experience. But what does John chapter 17, verse 17 say? It says, sanctify them through your truth. Your word is truth. My emotions are not true. My wife's emotions are even less true. (laughs) Don't tell us that. (laughs) That's a dangerous place to look to, isn't it? For For your motivation and reason for living and acting. And, and yet here in Southern California, emotion is still, but in the 60s, 70s, 80s, like that was a, the, the big thing people cared about, secularly. You know, do what you feel is right. Be true to you. And all of a sudden, well, there, there's an avenue for that within the, the church community as well. And so there was a movement that bubbled up, and we've heard about it before, uh, bubbled up really around the issues of uh, youth, uh, the Jesus culture movement. It was a group of young people having experiences, emotional experiences that were tied to uh, somewhat to Jesus. And so space started to be created within churches for personal babbling. That's all it was at the time. It's kind of like a, we don't really see it exactly like this, in the, but we're going to give room for it because these people are enthusiastic and they're young and we're all old. We need to get some of those people in the church too. And John Wimber at Fuller then came alongside and embraced this group in and tried to shape it. If you go to the next slide for me, please. He arrived at the seminary in 1974 to direct the new department of church growth at Fuller. Um, and over the next few years, he, he developed what he believed and called was the gift of power evangelism. That, that, that one converts not through rational arguments, but won them through emotional experience. Things like healing and prophecy or miraculous inventions or just the catching of the, the, the emotion in a moment. And, and that was their Jesus experience. Not a, people didn't talk about a moment they repented. You know, a, a moment they prayed an actual prayer to God consciously. But they talked about a, a time they, they felt Jesus in their life. They were affected by And so in 1982, a class was set up at the seminary called Signs, Wonders, and Church Growth. And it started to be offered to teach people how to do this. It's just, I don't know how you ever create a class where you teach people how to, you know, use the Holy Spirit like this. 
and so upside down. But, 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 but the time, the class involved regular lab sessions where the students came in to practice divine healing and casting out of demons. <laughs> Which I don't know how many demons they must have had in the student body <laughs> to make that class effective, but there you go. So it was feelings rather than rationale that was, was leading. And actually, funny enough, was pushing them away from the very Bible study techniques that had made Fuller distinctive. Uh, now, many people were influenced by this whole thing. But whether it be the subjectivism of Bible interpretation or whether it be the uh, pragmatic nature of the church growth statistics and strategies or whether it be the uh, let's make our culture more comfortable by embracing a fuller role for women, or whether it be this kind of power evangelism strategy. What's missing from it all? Well, it's something that you can point to that says that that's what I meant to do or not do. They've robbed themselves of the very authority that gives us confidence in what we do in the life of the church. The seminary had moved uh, and, and would continue to flip for a lot from uh, like hard science and interpretation to uh, weird emotional reasons why we should do this or that or whatever happened to be. And if we go to the last slide, please, for a second. The big thing was they missed the profound glory of Scripture. This is where our faith is guarded. This is where a discussion can be had. This is what allows an elder to sit down with you and to correct you when you err. Because it can show you where you err in the book. It's not their opinion. It's a book that, that gives the authority for that discussion to take place. Uh, Fuller Seminary had tried to connect and to talk to the larger culture of this world. And in reality, the world didn't care and the world didn't want to listen to them. And they themselves lost the very strength and press towards something because they had moved away from the authority of God's word. It always breaks down. Error always comes from two sources, deceit or ignorance. Either somebody's trying to like manipulate you in a deeply sinful way, or they just don't get it. But that's not this book. God never lies. God is ignorant of nothing. And that's why this book is, again, not like any other book. It becomes essential. There's no errors. There's nothing you need to have doubt about in it. You can't have confidence with a book. If you hear nothing else, go home and read the Bible knowing this is a book that you do not need magic formulas to interpret. God will uh, work and speak through the obvious meaning of the text. And, and you can have great confidence in that. You don't have to decide what is the true bit and what's the bit to put aside. It's all there. It's all true. It's all from God. And we can have confidence. We should have confidence in it. Fuller Seminary stands as a historical warning that makes clear that biblical inerrancy is essential, essential for the authority of Scripture. It's a necessity ingredient for the health of the church. Just because one holds to the doctrine 
of inerrancy. It doesn't mean that you will be pure and you'll never slip into heresy, but it certainly helps. You will slip into heresy without it. You need to know this book is the authority. All authoritative exposition depends on that. Uh, all that encouragement, that correction, that rebuke, it depends on understanding that this is from God. It'd be so nice if we didn't have to use these extra biblical words like infallibility or inerrancy or anything else at one level, but we do because people are so easily deceived. And we need to put guardrails up so you know that when somebody is adding to or taking away from the Word of God, for this book is worth protecting. Well, it doesn't need to be protected. It is the Word of God. It'll do its work. It'll march forward. But you will be helped. You will be fed. You will be edified by approaching the book as it is, the very Word of God by which He speaks to us and, and helps us to move forward and to live in a way that would honor and please him. Fuller Seminary warns, warns us who look on at it of the dangerous, subjective nature and ineffectiveness, not to mention sinfulness, that comes when we reject the inerrancy of Scripture. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we realize we are all men and women that... that are so easily misled. And when we think of the the gifts, the abilities, the, the, the level of intelligence that that seminary, and even the, the profound desire that institution had to make you known to the world, and yet how far it fell short and how mucky its message became. We pray, Lord, that you would protect us from pride, but that you would instill in us a confidence in the book and a determination to anchor ourselves to it and to allow it to speak into all areas of our thinking, our life, and our practice. May our discussions about how we honor and please you be discussions that are written in the scriptures. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.